Good morning. Joe mentioned I am not Pastor Matt. He's down in Andover, so I am here. Um, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 19 today, so begin finding your way there. But before we start, I want to recap where we have come through this gospel of Mark. This is our sixth week in Mark, and Mark, the author, was not an apostle, but he wrote his gospel to capture the teachings of the apostle Peter. He's also known as John Mark in the book of Acts. And the goal of this gospel is not just to put the Apostle Peter's writings down on paper. One commentator states, next to the themes of divine sonship and authority of Jesus, the theme of following Jesus is the most important one in the Gospel of Mark. So, the theme, divine sonship and authority of Jesus, followed by this call to discipleship. And we're going to see that in today's passage. So Mark starts out his gospel by reviewing the actions of John the Baptist, which was to pre prepare people for Christ's coming and to call them to repentance. Then Mark briefly mentions Jesus' temptation in the wilderness as well as his baptism before he gets to the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. And he captures that teaching ministry in chapter 1, verse 15, by recording these words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' message. That is what he came to proclaim. So we begin to see an emphasis on Jesus' teaching ministry. Then, Mark tells of Jesus calling some of the disciples, namely Peter and Andrew, James and his brother John. Jesus then heals a man of an unclean spirit in chapter 1, verse 28, and we read that the news about Jesus spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And these last two items that I mentioned, this calling of some of the disciples and this idea of people coming to Jesus because the news of him is spreading around. That's going to also be a factor in today's passage. Continuing on in our recap, Mark wraps up chapter 1 with Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law and also many others who were ill and demon-possessed in the town of Capernaum, and then teaching and healing throughout Galilee. In chapter 2, Jesus returns to Capernaum. He heals the paralyzed man, lowers him down through the roof, you remember that, and then he calls Levi, also known as Matthew, who is the author of one of the other Gospels. The subsequent meal following that call of Matthew leads him to tell the scribes and Pharisees that he has come to call the sinners, not the righteous. And then a brief interaction with John the Baptist's disciples. And that takes us up to the passages that Pastor Matt covered last week, showing that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The disciples picking grain as they're going through the field, and Jesus healing the withered hand on the Sabbath day. With that as an overview, 
Let's pray and then we'll get into today's passage. Lord, as we continue looking at the Gospel of Mark, please help us to understand what you would have us to understand. Please keep us from distractions during this time and draw us closer to you and to each other because of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage begins in Mark 3, verse 7. And Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're all providing a synopsis of Jesus' ministry. So the things that you find in one gospel, quite likely you'll find in another of these three. Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea... And we find in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew that it makes it even more explicit that Jesus' relocation was because he knows of a developing conspiracy. The, the last verse that Matt, Pastor Matt covered last week was Mark 3.6, and it said, And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus has healed on a Sabbath, it has caught the attention of the religious leaders, and they are not pleased. So Jesus withdraws, steps back, lets them catch their breath. But we're also told in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples and a great multitude followed. I only point this out to make the point that a person can be in the vicinity of Jesus perhaps is good friends with people who are Christians and still not be a believer. Hanging out at a church doesn't make you a Christian. Hanging out with Christian friends doesn't make you a Christian. Trusting Christ makes you a Christian. So here we have people who aren't yet disciples, but they are coming out in a way following Let's take a look at verses 7 and 8. A great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem, from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number, number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. If I were teaching this 15 years ago, this is where I would say, take your Bible, flip to the back where you'll find the maps, and... If your Bible doesn't have maps, consider getting another Bible. So many people have devices now. But let's look at this map. I am not a geography nerd, but I am encouraged when I see details, names of places, names of people, officials, and titles that get confirmed by archaeology. And I think it helps us to understand that the events of the Bible occurred in a real time, in a real place. So what do we learn from this list? Although not mentioned in the list that we just read, we have seen in the recap this morning that a lot of the activity was happening in a place called Capernaum. And that is located right up in here at the top of the Dead Sea. I'm sorry, at the Sea of Galilee, which is shown here. And Mark notes that people were coming from Galilee as well as down here in Judea. 
So Galilee and Judea, those are regions also mentioned in the list. People were coming from, oh, wrong button. People were coming from Jerusalem, which is a city in the province of Judea. So no real surprises here. We've got a Jewish teacher generating Jewish followers in a Jewish region, but we're also told that Jesus was attracting followers from Idumea, down here in the south, which was home to various people groups. The text also says that people were following from beyond the Jordan, over in here to the east. So people are coming around to the north side of the Sea of Galilee too. And we're told that people are coming from the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is 20 miles north of Tyre and just off the limits of my map. Perry Phillips is a commentator on geography and says, Tyre and Sidon were great port cities. It's interesting to contemplate how many members of the crowds from Tyre and Sidon likely consisted of sailors and travelers from distant regions of the Mediterranean. How far west did Jesus' reputation reach before Paul even began his missionary journeys? That's a cool thought. We've got people here coming down to here to see Jesus, but some of these guys are sailors from over here, points to the west. How many of those came down, heard of Jesus, went back, and then later decades, Paul, missionary journeys into this part of the world, way over there. How many people did Paul speak to who already had heard of Jesus? Let's put this into perspective. Jerusalem to Capernaum, 120 miles. No planes, no cars, no bicycles, no social media, but a great multitude are making a great effort to see Jesus. This is not the primary point I want to make in today's message, but it seems appropriate to point out that we in the 21st century can encounter Jesus without a whole lot of great effort. Not that it's always easy to find time to read our Bible or to listen to some sound teaching, but these first century people were traveling days to see Jesus. Let's continue moving forward. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. It seems safe to say that the boat that was standing by was not for the purpose of healing people, but perhaps to teach. Admittedly, there's a bit of inference here. But it's interesting to note that Matt, uh, Mark does not include that teaching. He seems interested just to communicate Jesus' popularity and his power. Also note that the tone of the text suggests that not everyone who came to Jesus was healed by Jesus. But if you have been here for the past five weeks, then you'll recall that Jesus' healings 
were intended to authenticate his teaching. Regarding Jesus' interaction with the unclean spirit, we had a similar discussion back in Mark chapter 134. So let's move on to Mark 3, verses 13 through 19. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so, that he could be with, so they could be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boadnerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in the parallel passage of Luke's gospel, we're told that when Jesus went to the mountain, he spent the entire night in prayer before coming to name these 12. And Luke 6.13 explicitly states that the 12 that were named were called apostles. And I only mention that because in some versions, this passage in Mark 3 explicitly states these are apostles, like the ESV, my New American Standard, which I read from, omits that. So in verse 14, Jesus appoints 12. But in the Greek, that word appoints is the Greek word for made. Jesus made this group. And commentators note that this is the same word that was used in Genesis 1 as God created. God made the expanse. God made two great lights. God made the beasts of the earth. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Jesus chooses 12 men and creates he makes a cohesive group. If you are going to pull together a group of people for a particular reason, you're going to assemble people who are commonly skilled or complementarily skilled. If you're going to create a basketball team, you are going to pick people who are talented players. If you are going to open a restaurant, you are going to hire a team that can cook, you are going to hire a group of people who focus on service. Who does Jesus appoint? Well, we've already seen Peter and Andrew and James and John. We've already seen that they're fishermen. Blue collar, which was more common back then before the Industrial Revolution. And we can presume by their nicknames that either James and John's father was a hothead, hence sons of thunder, or more likely that James and John had a temper. So yeah, James and John have a temper. I'm going to choose them so that they can eventually be missionaries. Andrew, only listed briefly in the Gospels. From the rest of the list, Philip, he gets very little ink in the Gospels, except in the feeding of the 5,000, where he's the one who tells Jesus about the boy with the five loaves and the couple of fish. 
Thomas is briefly mentioned in the Gospel of John, most notably for his doubt. Four of the apostles are never mentioned anywhere except in these lists of apostles. Judas Iscariot, he gets plenty of mention, but for all the wrong reasons. And we've already been introduced to Matthew. But apart from that narrative where Jesus calls him, he isn't mentioned anywhere else except in these lists of apostles. Let's make a couple observations. We know that we have the working man contingency, represented by the fishermen. We also have Matthew, the tax collector. As Pastor Matt mentioned a couple weeks ago, the tax collectors were Jews who worked for Rome, gathering the occupiers' wages to keep on occupying, and they had the ability, the authority per the Roman government, to tax above and beyond, to charge above and beyond what Rome required so that they were able to extract additional funds from their own countrymen. So he was called by Jesus as a disciple, now elevated to an apostle, but how do you think he was received by the others? Or consider Simon the Zealot. We don't know anything more about him except that his name suggests that he was associated with a political movement. The Moody Bible Commentary says, the term zealot was used of Jewish extremists organized for throwing, overthrowing the Roman government by violent rebellion, even advocating murder when necessary to advance their cause. So we have Matthew collecting taxes on behalf of Rome, and we have Simon the zealot who wanted to overthrow Rome, even advocating murder when necessary to advance his cause. Thanksgiving is only one month and one day away. And it's great to get together with family, usually. But you know that if everyone is going to have a pleasant day, you have to stay away from some topics. So, Simon the Zealot shows up. Is he wearing the MAGA hat or is he wearing the Biden-Harris t-shirt? It doesn't matter. Here's Matthew, the tax collector, here are the sons of thunder. And Thanksgiving's only a month away. But these are the people Jesus chooses. We have no indication that any of them had a background in theology. We have no indication that any of them had public speaking skills. We can infer that Levi had some administrative skills because of his work in the tax office, although it winds up that Judas Iscariot winds up being the treasurer for the group. What did these people bring to the table? But Jesus chose them. So did the group gel? Despite all the disparate backgrounds, did the group do what Jesus had called them for? Remember verse 14, Jesus has called them for two things, to be with him, to be sent by him. And as they are sent, they are sent to preach and to cast out demons. Luke, in his parallel passage, chapter 9-2, explains the 
mission as he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, what Mark has said, to preach, and Luke says, to perform healing. What Mark has said was to cast out the demons. And four verses later in Mark, we get this conclusion that the apostles were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So yes, the apostles did what Jesus had sent them out to do. But how did this group of disjointed, recently appointed or promoted disciples, you could even argue that they were enemies at the very beginning, how did they come together to become a unified group of apostles? Remember, Jesus called them to two things. And the first thing was to be with him. And as they were with him, they received a firsthand understanding of what it meant to proclaim the kingdom of God, which is how Luke explains their preaching ministry. This idea of the kingdom of God is that God is sovereign over everything he created. He is sovereign over everything he sustains. And Jesus is displaying the sovereignty, not in the least through his miracles of healing, with every fever that he heals, with every paralytic that he strengthens, with every withered hand that he strengthens, that he straightens, Jesus is saying, I am king and I am bigger than this illness. With each demon that he casts out, Jesus is saying, I am sovereign even over the unseen realms. In future weeks, and as we get to Mark 4, we're going to see more about the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is also demonstrating the kingdom of heaven in his interactions with other people. We see it in his willingness to heal. We see it in his desire to teach the truth. We see it in his confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. We see it in, a pro, in an appropriate level of grace and or pushback that he applies to any given situation. And this newly appointed group is seeing it in Christ because as the king, everything he does is an example of what being a part of the kingdom of God means. Everything he does is a display of kingdom authority. So Jesus transforms this group. It's notable how little mention, and I've already spoken of it, how little mention any of the individual apostles is given in the narratives of the gospel. And yet, collectively, we are regularly reading of the apostles and how they are with him. The thing I want us most to come away with today, however, is Jesus' assessment of this group. I know this is fast-forwarding a bit, but flip to John 15, 15. In John 15, 15, we see the discussion about Jesus at the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, 
Jesus predicts that one of the apostles is going to betray him. He tells Judas, what you do, do quickly. Jesus, uh, Judas leaves the gathering. And I find it amazing that Jesus has just said, one of you will betray me, and the group interacts. Is it me? Who? And we don't have any recording of any of them saying, I bet it's Judas. But once Judas is gone, Jesus says this remarkable thing about this formerly disjointed group of disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus has called the apostles friends. In a very real sense, the apostles are a community. The tax collector, the zealot, the sons of thunder, the rest of the apostles, Jesus' friends. And in verse 16, we just read, I chose you and appointed you. In R.C. Sproul's commentary on Mark, he writes the following regarding the choosing of the apostles. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth hearing. In a sense... This is a microcosmic look at what Jesus does for the whole kingdom of God. He calls those whom he wants. The Greek word that is translated as church in the Bible is ekklesia. The word is made up of a prefix and a root. The prefix is ek or ex, which means out of or from. The root word is a form of the verb kaleo, which means to call. Thus, ekklesia means those who are the called out ones. Simply put, the invisible church, the true church, is composed of those who are called by God, not only outwardly, but inwardly by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus calls someone to discipleship, he is calling that person to himself, to belong to him, to follow him, and to learn from him and of him, end quote. And I would add to this, and I'm reluctant to add to R.C. Sproul, but this wasn't his focus, but I would add to this that when Jesus calls someone, he is calling them both to friendship and community, not only with himself, but with other believers. The book of Proverbs contains over a dozen verses referencing friendship. We need to cultivate community and friendship as followers of Christ. This is not easy. It takes time. It takes interaction with others. It takes commitment. So here is a shameless plug for small groups. Our church recognizes the need to cultivate these types of relationships. We need to present opportunities for Christian friendship, and we intentionally do that through small groups. If Sunday morning is your only opportunity to hang out with other believers, really you get a few minutes before the service and however long you wish to hang after the service down eating snacks, small group could 
literally double the time that you get to spend. And if you come early, stay late, you could even triple it. But we want to grow in our love for Christ and our ability to see Christ in others. And I would argue that along with the healings, it was the apostles' friendship and love for each other that people saw in the apostles that made their preaching so effective. Before I lead us into our time of communion, I want to read for us a poem called Portrait of a Christian by Beatrice Cleland. Be advised, one of the words in it is beatific, not a word that we use every day. You're familiar with the word, not familiar with it, doesn't matter. The word still means blissful or saintly. Not only in the words you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. Is it a beatific smile? A holy light upon your brow? Oh no, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. To me, it was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me so dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. And from his light he beckons me, and from your lips his love is shed, till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. By way of encouragement, I can think of particular moments when I have seen Christ in you. And for that, I want to thank you. As we prepare for communion, remember that friendship that we have just discussed is only possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus made shortly after that Last Supper. But I'd also like to think about that word communion. At its root is the word commune. And the word commune has with it a sense of intimacy. But I don't think this is only intimacy with Christ, since the pattern of the church taking communion is to take it corporately with each other. This suggests that there's also an aspect of intimacy with each other as we partake of the elements. It's appropriate to reflect on Christ's sacrifice and our need, but let us also come with gratitude and even joy for the bond that his sacrifice has made available amongst ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we don't deserve you, but you have blessed us greatly. We thank you for all you have given on our behalf. And you didn't do it grudgingly. Immediately before you called the apostles friends, you said, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. We could never know a greater love, so thank you. Let our love for you cause us to develop bonds of friendship as the apostles and help us to remember that we, like the apostles, are called to spend time with you and to tell others of you. Make us faithful, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.